0: Welcome to Soundings Podcast. I'm Dudley Evanson, and for more than four decades, my husband Dean Evanson and I have created music and media that supports people and the planet. In our Soundings Podcast, we'll be sharing interviews with wisdom keepers we have met in the course of our life journey. To learn more about our activities and releases, please visit our website and blog at soundings.com. In this series, we'll be hearing interviews from the sound healing pioneers who are featured on our Sonic Healing Meet the Masters video course. This is from Session 4, Prayer Medicine and Tibetan Mantra. This session gains the perspective of medical professionals as we meet with husband and wife team, Dr. Larry Dossie and Barbara Dossie. They shed light on prayer, spiritual healing, and the role music plays from the standpoint of a medical physician and a holistic nurse. Dr. Larry Dossey has probably done more than anyone in the medical field to bring awareness of the power of prayer and its effect on the healing process. He has written many books and articles and his research has been extensive in compiling data about the phenomenon of unexplained miracle cures and remissions linked with prayer and non-local mind. Dr. Dossi served as a battalion surgeon in Vietnam, hospital chief of staff, executive editor of alternative therapies in health and medicine, and lectured at major medical schools and hospitals worldwide. Enjoy.
1: I'm Larry Dossi, and my profession has been that of an internal medicine physician. I practiced medicine in Dallas for about 25 years and before that served as a battalion surgeon in Vietnam. And uh, for the last uh, 10 or 15 years my preoccupation has been with looking at the role of spirituality in health care and uh, the role of prayer particularly in health outcomes. I have a special interest in this because I was so shocked when I first came across this data because I was trained to believe as a physician that spirituality simply uh, did not matter where health and illness were concerned. Uh, My position on this has changed 180 degrees. I personally think now, after looking at this information for uh, over two decades, that this uh, is one of the best kept secrets in modern medicine. Uh, Interestingly, my own profession, which has resisted this tremendously, uh, is coming around to another point of view. Uh, Nearly all of the medical schools in the country now feature courses looking at the role of spirituality in healthcare, uh, which is just a tremendous uh, turnaround from the situation even a decade ago. So I think we can say that spirituality truly is returning to medicine. And uh, for my own part, I'd say it's about time. I was astonished uh, during my first year of medical practice to come across a patient who had terminal lung cancer and uh, there was no treatment at that time for this man and all he wanted was to go home and be allowed to die in the privacy of his own uh, family. Uh, The only treatment he had in this big academic teaching hospital was that the congregation from his church came to be with him during all visiting hours and they prayed like crazy for him. I couldn't even get to the bedside because of these people to do even basic medical care uh, I considered this a frivolous treatment. He wanted to go home to die, so I discharged him. I forgot about him and I was certain that he would be dead within a, a week or so. I was shocked a year later when he showed up back at the hospital with a case of the flu. So I went down to the radiology department and looked at his current chest x-ray, which was normal. I compared it to the previous one, which showed this horrific lung cancer, which involved both lungs. And uh, the only therapy which he said that he had was prayer from the congregation. Uh, I was disturbed by this and uh, sought out some of my old professors to ask them their opinion about this. Uh, One of them said something very helpful. He said, well, Larry, we see this. Uh, That was extremely helpful, and I sought out another professor, and he said, Well, you see enough cases of lung cancer, and this is just one of those things we see as the natural course of the disease. This showed me uh, how we really will go to any lengths to ignore and dismiss spiritually-related therapeutic remissions, so-called spontaneous remissions, when they occur in the context of prayer, devotion, and, uh, and so on. Uh, I thought about that case for many years and then in 1988 when I came across the first so-called double-blind, randomized, controlled study in prayer, I thought about that case which I'd seen uh, 10 years prior and so this kindled kindled a resurgence of interest on my part about whether or not spiritual interventions really could do something in the course of illness. I went to the world's literature and found about a hundred and thirty studies which actually looked at the role of prayer and so-called healing intentions not just in humans but in animals and plants and so on and found that about two-thirds of these studies actually showed what we call statistical significance which shows that something is going on here that simply cannot be explained away by saying well it just happened according to chance uh, I kept up with this literature through the years uh, and wrote a book about it when I decided that this was really on firm scientific footing. I'm happy to say that this book Healing Words became a New York Times bestseller. I'm also delighted to say that it rekindled an interest throughout medical schools around the country and before long researchers and physicians began to come out of the closet pursuing their own interest in this. Uh, And there was really a deep interest in this although it had just gone underground. So that if we fast forward from 1988 uh, through the 90s to today, what we see is about 9 to 15 human studies in prayer, depending on on how you uh, select them. And about 50% of these studies show that prayer actually helps uh, people get better and sometimes stay alive. Uh, I think that this is the main reason that the medical schools have begun to come around and feature this in the curriculum, so that now around 90 of the nation's medical schools actually have developed places in the curriculum to feature this sort of work. One of the new so-called emerging alternative therapies uh, has to do with music. Uh, Music has long fascinated me. Uh, It's been a tremendous influence in my own life, so it's not surprising to me as a physician that music actually might have healing properties. I can't imagine my own life working without music. Uh, I learned how to play the piano as a kid. I uh, was actually uh, a professional gospel pianist for a a raving evangelist in Central Texas. (laughs) Growing up and actually made money to uh, put myself through college, partially, uh, through playing for tent revivals uh, as, as a young kid. Uh, I repented of that and went on to teach myself the flute. Uh, but just to say that music has really been an essential part of how I get through, through my day. Uh, I found also that uh, music helps me write. I have a certain number of uh, CDs which I listen to. Uh, I've learned that certain forms of music can inhibit my creativity, and I have distinguished those from those that really help. And I must say that the compositions of Dean Evanson have been some of my greatest friends uh, through the years when I sit down at the computer computer and the word processor and really need to do something creative. So I take my hat off to Dean Evanson and the contributions he's made uh, to the use of healing and creativity and in medicine. I've recently begun to explore how it is that music is so powerful an effect uh, in our lives. Uh, I went to the internet and googled uh, the most frequently listed internet uh, sites. Not surprisingly, the, the topic that comes out on top is sex. There are over 185 million websites Dedicated to sex related topics. Second on the list is music, and music is not far behind. So it seemed to me that this made a lot of sense historically. People have long recognized that music and sex are extraordinarily potent factors in people's lives, and that's one reason I'm convinced why governments have so long tried to regulate sex and music. This goes back as long as uh, we have records. The Greeks were particularly eager to regulate music. Uh, If you look at Socrates and and Aristotle's writings, they were specific about how music could affect people's lives, and they were really nervous about it. Uh, There were certain modes of music, which Socrates and Aristotle said should be outlawed because they made the mind soft. There were modes of music that were okay for women and not okay for for men and vice versa. And so a good deal of thought has been dedicated to regulating the kinds of music governments want citizens to listen to. I find this fascinating, because if you look at some of the political movements these days, you find out that one of the first things that governments do when they come into power is to try to get a hold on the music that people listen to. The best example we've had lately is the Taliban who took over in 88 or 89 after the Soviets were kicked out of Afghanistan, one of the first things they did was to ransack the archives of music at Kabul Radio and destroy them, much like they did those Buddhist statues in Afghanistan. Because they realized that music could stir passion, and some of the passions that music stirred were not the sort of things they wanted to occur in their watch if you look at the way totalitarian governments behave around the world they are really keen to monitor music because in some of the third world countries for example people are largely illiterate but messages can be conveyed through music maybe not through written pamphlets or newspapers or something like that but people get the message uh... through music and it stirs the passions it stirs the soul and some of these passions and the messages are not the sort of thing that these totalitarian governments want their citizens listening to. One of the questions that has interested me through the years is where music originates from. Uh, the The popular image is that we just sort of invent it. You know, we compose it. Uh, uh, it somehow pops into our heads. We set it down, and there you are. I think uh, it may be more complex than this. I've been fascinated by the explosion of interest in interest in what's been called dna music Uh, this is uh, a form of music which has been elaborated by certain geneticists and biological and molecular scientists and here's what they do they will take human dna and they will string it out and there are five so-called nucleotides that make up human dna and you can assign musical notes so that everywhere you find one of these nucleotides, you'll assign a certain note to it. Then you can assign certain timing to it and have professional musicians play it back. And here's the stunning thing. It sounds like some of the most brilliant passages from Chopin or Mozart or Bach that you've ever heard. It is shocking to hear some of this music played by professional musicians and to think that this music is rooted in our DNA. This has been done with other chemicals and uh, molecules in the body besides DNA. No matter where you look in the body, if you uh, go about assigning musical notes in a structured way, you come out with something that is often really gorgeous, stunningly beautiful music. I became so interested in this that uh, I decided at a certain point to see if one could use this therapeutically and uh, a few years ago when I was at an AIDS conference I took with me a tape of this DNA music which was the first ever done this way and it was done by a noted world-famous geneticist Dr. Susumo Ono at the Beckman Institute uh, at the City of Hope in uh, uh, Duarte, uh, California. He gave me permission to play this tape uh, at this conference. The reason I did it was to challenge these AIDS patients who at that time uh, were not uh, being furnished the triple drug antiretroviral therapies that AIDS patients today take. At that time there were no really good treatments for AIDS, unlike currently. And so many of these AIDS patients and HIV positive patients had these horrible images of their body as decaying rotting structures. And so I told them that the message behind the DNA music was there's something beautifully and mu- beautiful and musical about who we are genetically. And so I simply played this for them. And the music was so captivating for these aged patients to think that this is originated in their own DNA that people broke out sobbing. Uh, no one could say anything for the longest time after the weeping was, went on for moments and moments, they requested that we replay it with the same effect. And so this is a vivid demonstration to me that if one thinks about the body as music and devises a way to make this audible, that this can have profound healing effects on the way people see their own bodies and can be extraordinarily healing. One of the most interesting examples of the healing power of music is to see what happens in hospitals when you simply play music to people. If you play music to people who are in the coronary care unit, they do better. They request less pain medication, their anxiety levels go down, they have fewer complications such as arrhythmias and so on. So, this has been studied uh, at great lengths, and I think the ability of music in critical care units to make a difference in how people respond is pretty much under the wire. Not too many people argue with this. This has been taken further. Uh, The question could be asked, well, if it's good for the patient, is it good for the doctor? Music has been played to surgeons during surgery and they've been monitored as far as their rise in blood pressure and pulse rate and so on. And the physicians are allowed to listen to the music of their choice they do not have the increase in stress responses in their body that uh, they would without listening to music. So uh, if I ever have an operation, I want my surgeon to be listening to the music of his choice. And interestingly, it doesn't matter in these studies whether it's Mozart, Bach, or, uh, or Elvis. It has to be pleasing to the person listening to it. That's the key point. This means that we can't prescribe any specific music for anyone because there's so much individuality involved that people need to choose their own music. Also, if you play music to some of the most desperately ill people you can think of, one sees often stunning clinical turnarounds. The most dramatic examples I've come across is when people are in coma. And I was able to chase down several examples of people who had been in coma for weeks to months. And then, when music was played to them, all of a sudden, they wake up and they chime in singing with the music. How are we to understand this? This looks virtually miraculous. As far as we know, these people are not perceiving anything, but at a certain point when stimulated with certain kinds of music they wake up some of the most interesting examples of this have to do with a specific kind of music and it's plano ordinary christmas carols and in two cases when carolers came around to the intensive care unit and sang to the comatose patient the patient wakes up and starts chiming in at the top of his lungs with God rest ye merry gentlemen I have no explanation for this it may be that there's so much emotional investment in Christmas carols and people connect that with great joy and moments of happiness in their life that that's the key but we really don't know but these cases give really tantalizing clues I think to the healing power of music and the fact that we have really drastically underestimated what music can do under certain situations. I'm particularly interested in how music can bring people together internationally. If you think about it, some of the greatest ambassadors that America has ever produced have been people like Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and the jazz other jazz greats who tour the world, and no matter where they go, even before the Iron Curtain fell, people swarm them. And these people have a way, through their music, of bridging cultural differences and overcoming prejudice and intolerance. I think that we need to reevaluate the role of music as a political uh, tool in our world today. I'm particularly fascinated by a comment that Leonard Bernstein made before he died. And if I may read it, Bernstein said, this will be our reply to violence to make music more intensely, more beautiful and more devotedly than ever before. Today, our country is deciding on how we will respond to violence, to terrorism. And I think that there are more options than simply to use shock and awe. And I think that we ought to give serious consideration to music as a substitute for some of the more violent ways that we have chosen to respond to terrorism in our world.
0: Thank you for listening to our Soundings podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this program. To learn more about our music, guided meditations and videos, please visit our website and blog at soundings.com. Peace through music blessings.